when she came around, she was in recovery ward and her surgeon was at the end of the bed. And he said, glad to see you've made it through. Welcome back. You do know that the herbs did this, don't you? And she's like, what do you mean? And she's kind of woozy from the surgery. Do you think my herbs caused this cancer? And he said, no, 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 that's not what I mean at all. He said, we would never have expected to see this kind of resolution with the chemo that you had. We thought we were just sort of patching in a little bit. And the herbs, this is the herbs that did this. Your cancer is gone. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. I waited many months for this interview with Chanchal Cabrera as she kept at bay all distractions while on a self-prescribed writing retreat to work on her book about herbal oncology. And the wait sure was worth it. Despite Chanchal's long history lecturing on herbal medicine at Pacific Rim College, this was our first opportunity to meet. I doubt it would be the last that there is still so much richness for us to unearth. Even though the focus of this interview is relatively limited to cancer and herbal medicine, Through tangents, we diverge into a significantly broader view that captures topics such as preservation of plants and old growth forests, the concept of collaborative medicine, journeying with ayahuasca, personal development, and dying with dignity and celebration. Chanchal established a connection with herbs as a young girl with flower presses and her personal spice collection. A family cancer scare led her into the clinic of renowned herbalist David Hoffman and David welcomed her into his dispensary, giving her a glimpse of herbal medicine in action. She has been enamored with herbs ever since and a professional herbalist for more than 30 years. Among an impressive list of credentials and accolades, Chantel is the author of the book, Fibromyalgia, A Journey Toward Healing, and a certified master gardener. She and her husband farm seven acres on Vancouver Island at Innisfree Farm and Botanical Gardens. Whether your interest lies in natural cancer care, herbal medicine, or Chanchal directly, you will not be disappointed in this episode. She shares with us some incredible stories of both life and death and plants seeds for many future herbalists to sow. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Chanchal Cabrera. Chanchal, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. I'm so excited to have you here. I want to start by learning about this writing retreat that you put yourself on so you can create a book on herbalism and oncology. So I want to hear all about that. Well, gosh, as if as if COVID wasn't isolated enough, I decided it's only myself and my husband on the property in the winter and a few animals, just chickens, really. Um, but I decided that wasn't isolated enough. So I rented a house for three months. Um, and not market house, I mean, not market value. It was a friend who was away for the for a year and the house was available. Um, and I was alone for three months, basically. My husband came and gave me um, uh, grocery runs once a week. <laughs> and uh, and that was absolutely amazing. I, um, yeah, and I cleared my deck. So that's all I had to do was do the writing. Now you would think that I could have written a book in that time. And I did write a lot, 
but now the hard work starts and I'm, I'm deep in it. And I'm I, in, 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 um, in my other life, I also do a lot of work in kitchens and in kitchen speak, I'm in the weeds at the moment, uh, which I find an interesting analogy because that's a gardening term. And yet in kitchen speak, being in the weeds means you're, you're, you're backed up and um, something's burning on the stove and the sink's overflowing and uh, the orders are coming in and you're not ready. <laughs> So I'm a little bit like that right now. I'm trying to do editing, but I'm trying to do editing on top of all my rest of my life. And it's a bit stressful, but uh, yeah. Fair enough. The book is underway. Well, that I'm very impressed that you took three months, set it aside, got a different home, all of that. Like that is so important in the writing process to be able to create that space. Yeah, I'm not someone who does well. I multitask a lot, but when I'm writing, I just want to have my head down and do it and not have any other distractions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, how long has this book idea been percolating for you? Uh That's a good question. Um, I never set out to write a book about oncology. That was not on my radar at all. Um, It is my practice specialty, but I never felt I wanted to put myself out there to write a book about it. And then I was asked. I actually had a couple of other books, you know, that I was chewing away on in the back of my mind and uh, noodling away on on the computer. And then I was asked to write a book um, about about oncology. And so, yeah, it felt like, you know, when when opportunities present, sometimes you just have to jump. Oh, that's great. And. I'm guessing you have a great deal of experience then in oncology to be able to put together this book. Yeah, for better or worse, I had been, this is how it came about. I'd been in practice about 15 years and I had a general practice, a very general practice. And it was a very busy practice. I was seeing patients four days a week and it was really solid and I was booked up ahead and it was, you know, it was great. It was certainly paying the bills. And um, in the beginning, I loved it and I learned a lot and I, you know, it was, it was exciting and, not always successful, obviously, but um, but generally speaking, I felt I had a good handle on what I was doing. And somewhere, you know, somewhere around five years after graduation, I felt like I was, you know, good at what I was doing. Like I had, I came out of college with core competence, not probably not going to kill people, maybe would have been able to help, right? <laughs> um, and I tell all my students, that, you know, if, if that's what you get out of college, that's a good start, you know, that's because people come out of college three years and they, you know, they're going to save the world. And I'm like, no, actually, you know, now you start the work, right? So anyways, after about five years of practice, I felt good at what I was doing. And after about 10 years of practice, I felt skilled at what I was doing. And then somewhere around the 15 year mark, I realized that um, I wasn't fresh anymore, that there was new information that I wasn't able to keep up with. There was um, new herbs had come along, new diseases to come along. I mean, I graduated in 1987. So we didn't have, uh, we didn't deal with chronic fatigue. We didn't deal with fibromyalgia. We didn't deal with Lyme. We didn't deal with HIV. I mean, HIV was named while I was in college. We didn't have hep C. We had something called non-A, non-B. So they knew it was out there, but they hadn't found the virus. So, you know, so there was a lot of things that changed. A lot of herbs came along. I mean, when I was in college, we didn't learn, um, we didn't learn ginkgo. It wasn't a thing. We didn't learn ashwagandha. It wasn't a thing. I mean, not that they weren't being used in other 
countries, other systems, but not in the sort of Western herbal medicine I was learning. So anyways, after about 15 years, I found myself in a rut. I found myself not learning in clinic anymore, just helping people. Yeah, it's gratifying. So another menopause case, another asthma case, another eczema case, and they began to become cases, not people. And I didn't feel good about that. That wasn't why I went into medicine. I didn't want it to just be a rote thing. So I decided to go back to school and I ended up in a master of science in herbal medicine in the UK. And that was, I was in the first cohort through and um, I was already doing a lot of education. So I was hired to do curriculum design for that degree. And when we got the accreditation, the school in Scotland then turned to me and said, well, I guess you're signing up then, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, I suppose I am. <laughs> it actually wasn't very planned. Um, but that degree, um, just as an aside, you maybe you knew this already, but Amanda Howe did that same degree at the same time as me. Okay. But we had also been in herb school in the 80s at the same time together. Oh, really? Yeah, Amanda was a year ahead of me in herb school. We knew each other, but we weren't close buddies. And then I moved to Vancouver and she went off to India and Nepal and she met a fellow there that she married. And he was working in a little village that I used to live in in India. So we had a point of contact there. And then she moved out here and eventually to the island. Eventually I moved to the island as well. But in the interim, we'd both gone to grad school at the same time together. So we have this really wow. interesting kind of lockstep life here. Yeah. Yeah, kind of odd. Anyways, that degree was a really interesting degree because it was um, it was a master of science, but it was predicated on um, holistic science methodology. And so they caused us to do subjective as well as objective. They wanted us to do art and music and poetry and all of that, as well as hard science. So some people did some very um, sort of esoteric dissertations and quite I mean Amanda's dissertation on devil's club was really amazing she made paper from the fibers and she made ink from the berries I mean she did a really incredible job I ended up in the most linear sort of mainstream dissertation it wasn't really my choice but I got offered the opportunity to take a job doing research in Donnie Yance's clinic and Donnie is a herbalist in the U.S. that I had been working with already. I'd actually been doing management consulting in his practice, helping him set up systems and methods and policies and procedures, because he's a seat of the pants, never went to formal schooling kind of guy. Brilliant, my absolutely brilliant mentor. But um, I was doing management consulting for him as a side job, and he offered me a job to do research in his clinic, which was mostly a cancer clinic and herbal medicine and nutrition. So I was actually hired to do research on quality of life in breast cancer patients, long-term breast cancer survivors in his practice. So I got paid to do my dissertation. And it wasn't my first choice topic, but it was interesting and challenging. And it was very mainstream because I was doing, I had to purchase, I had to purchase questionnaires out of a research center in Brussels. And then it came with this software package for doing all the statistical analysis, which still makes me laugh because I'm number blind. I just like, I see numbers, I just switch off. And so I had to hire an undergrad student. I'm in grad school. I hired an undergrad student at the local university to do all my data entry and manipulate the numbers for me. I hadn't <laughs> a clue. Anyways. I got a degree out of it. I got a master's um, and, uh, and I got a huge exposure to cancer care, which I had never expected to, to, to have. And 
I got into herbal medicine through my family, my dad um, in particular, who was diagnosed with a sort of um, pre-cancerous um, situation and it, something that runs in our family. And, um, and so anyway, he went to see a herbalist when I was a teenager and was completely resolved. And he lived until he was in his 80s and died of an aneurysm. And the herbalist he went to was David Hoffman. Oh, wow. So I was introduced to David when I was 14. And, um, and David was um, a new grad himself at the time, long-haired hippie, living in a <laughs> commune in a teepee. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but he was very gracious with my dad. Um, I think they met in the political sphere first because David was the first person ever to stand. He didn't get elected, but he was the first person ever to stand as a parliamentary representative of the Green Party in the United Kingdom. And my dad was very, very politically active. <clears throat> and so they had met through that world. So when dad got sick, he went to see David. David fixed him up and came to the farm and showed my dad some of the herbs. My parents had a farm, showed my dad some of the herbs that he could pick for himself, which he did until he died. The year he died, he, he died in, um, in June. And even already that year, he'd been out harvesting his meadow sweet. Right. So we picked mm. his own herbs. So I got really interested. I was already interested in plants. I had a, a scrapbook full of pressed flowers with Latin names written out on them and stuff like that. You know, from eight or nine years old, I was pressing flowers and looking up Latin names. And I had a collection of I had gone to the kitchen and I took I had a collection of little jars with all my mum's spices and herbs in my bedroom so I could smell them. And I would sniff on those jars. Tarragon was my favorite, which is funny because it's my husband's favorite herb. Um, but I would, I had this little, I remember the jars very well um, and stuffing the herbs in. And, uh, and then I had them all set out on a shelf, my little herb collection, basically. So it seemed quite natural when, when dad went to see David Hoffman that I would go with him and sit in those consultations. And then David was very gracious and let me go backstage and see the dispensary and even pour some tinctures and weigh some herbs. And, um, and so I blame David for everything now. <laughs> <laughs> but in all those years, so, you know, as a teenager then I went, you know, finished high school and went to live in India and what have you. But um, when I ended up in clinical practice, if a cancer patient came, I didn't really feel like I had much to offer. We didn't really learn much in college. We learned an awful lot about eczema and irritable bowel and, you know, the day-to-day -day things that, that are our bread and butter. But we didn't really learn. We didn't have a module on oncology, let's put it that way. I had modules on just about all the other body systems and diseases, but nothing on oncology. So I came out feeling really pretty helpless with that. If someone came to clinic with that diagnosis, I really actually didn't feel I had very much to offer. So I tended not to take those patients, actually. I would sort of take them after the event, you know, to help, you know, fix up some post-treatment problems, but not really knowing what I was doing. <laughs> and then I went to work with Donnie. And I don't know if you know Donnie's work. I don't, um, no. He um, he's one of the most accomplished and actually one of the leading herbalists in the U.S. Donnie Yance, Y-A-N-C-E. It's um, he's had his cancer book came out in 1999. Um, and it's still a good book. It's out of date, but it's still a good book. Um, he runs a very, very large clinic with multiple practitioners, and he's got an absolutely phenomenal product line. And I'm happy to tell you this because I make no commissions. I'm not on any sales, anything. 
but his product line, Natura Health Products, are the most intelligent herbal formulas I've ever seen anywhere. They are absolutely phenomenal. They're extremely expensive, but that is because they are the best quality I've ever seen anywhere. And I was there when he was starting the company. So I actually did some of the primary research with him to find some of the suppliers. And what he does is, you know, I do a lot of consulting now for other, other people who want to bring a product to market and they'll have an idea and we'll work out what herbs and proportions and how that, you know, how to pitch it. And then I'm like, where are you getting this made? It's usually capsules. Oh, my manufacturer has a warehouse of herbs. I'm like, really? And are they any good? Oh, yeah, they're a great manufacturer. No, are the herbs any good? Oh, yeah, I'm sure they're fine. It's like, no. How do you know they're fine? I mean, I'm all about quality control because I ran the herb store for 11 years and did all that purchasing. I really, really big on quality control. So anyway, with Donnie, what he does is he goes to suppliers all over the world and buys the best product he can find and has it drop shipped to his manufacturers to put in his product. So he's not relying on them to find anything. His products are phenomenal. I encourage you to go to his website, Natura Health Products, and take some time tooling around. If you register as a practitioner, Todd, then you get backstage on the website and he's got thousands of pages of references. He is, he is um, learning disabled. So he, he has, um, he's almost, he's very, I think he's very dyslexic and he's almost, I, I can't say illiterate because he reads avidly and he writes all the time, but he can't actually write. It has to be typed. And he's a information junkie. And um, so his big thing is referencing. He's really, really deep into that. So his work is really interesting. I don't, I don't think he's a great writer. He has to get a lot of editing done, but um but what comes out of there is phenomenal. So I had two and a half years living in Oregon where he lives and finishing doing grad school and working in his clinic. And I saw stuff in that clinic that I never expected to see with cancer. And it gave me a level of confidence that I, I'm sad to say most herbalists coming out of schools these days don't have that feeling that herbs can do a lot for cancer. They tend to feel a bit like me, a bit, you know, in the beginning, overwhelmed and frightened and, oh my God, all those drugs are so difficult to work with. And honestly, now I'll tell you, this sounds a bit flippant and I don't mean it this way, but my take on it now is nothing that I can do with my herbs is going to be as damaging as those drugs. So I'm yeah. far more confident than I ever used to be. Now I'm like, take the herbs, just take mm -hmm. the herbs. You know? Well, that's such a good point. It's yeah. I mean, not that the, everything is always appropriate for everybody, of course, but um, I'm working right now with a patient in the States who's attending the block clinic in, Cal in, in Chicago. And he's told her not to take a couple of herbs with, with the treatment that she's on. But I'm just waiting for the references now because I never take that at face value anymore. When a doctor says, don't take the herbs, I'm like, really? Wow, tell me how not, like teach me here. I wanna know your references. And he will, I'm sure Dr. Block will because he's that kind of practitioner, but most of them, they're just like, just don't take them, it's dangerous. So yeah, so my practice is probably about 80%, 80, more than 80% cancer care. And, uh, and I couldn't do that if, it, if I didn't get results. If I didn't see people getting better, I wouldn't be able to keep it going. I mean, you know, in myself, my, my morale would crumble. So, so it works. <clears throat> what sort of results are you getting? 
You know, it's right across the board because I get patients who um, <clears throat> I get patients who are at the very end, who've waited until the bitter end and then they want the magic potion. And obviously I can't do a great deal with that. That's more about symptom management and palliative care style. Um, but most of my patients are on chemo or going to do chemo or have done chemo. So I'm doing a lot of work around the drugs and keeping up with the newest drugs and um, and the best results are the patients who come early and do everything, do everything they're asked, including in many cases, surgery, drugs, et cetera. I'm not, a, it's not either or, it's absolutely not alternative medicine. I did a whole section in the book about why I don't practice alternative medicine. That's not a term I ever use in my practice because that's an, un, it's impossible for patients to choose one or the other. So I practice collaborative medicine. That's the term I like to use. Um, and that came from First Nations people in Northern Quebec. I was working with an ethnobotanist out of the University of Montreal. And he had, he told me about research he was doing in Northern Quebec with First Nations peoples who, um, you know, we've, we, we all know that the term alternative medicine is, is, is derogatory and not, not appropriate. So we'd kind of, and even complimentary, you know, there's the doctors and we kind of compliment them. So I had been calling and many people that I know still call their work um, integrated medicine. And for a number of years, I thought that was a good, a good word. It's like the best of all worlds, right? Get integrated, you know, mainstream, conventional and, and, and alternatives. And then these, this ethnobotanist told me about the First Nations people in Northern Quebec, that he was, re, he was doing diabetes research and looking at what herbs they were using for, for, um, for diabetes. And some of them were also on um, diabetes medications. And so he was talking with them about how they navigate that. And he used the word integrated. And they stopped him right away and said, no, we don't practice integrated medicine here because integration for our peoples means loss of cultural identity, homogeneity, you know, loss of, loss of intellectual property rights, et cetera. We don't want to be integrated. And he's like, well, okay, but you are using both, you know, conventional, you know, modern medicine and traditional medicine. So what do you call that? And they came up with the term collaborative. And I took it right away. I thought that is a fantastic terminology for what I'm trying to do to help patients navigate is actually the word I use a lot to navigate the main, mainstream medicine um, in a way that works for them. Yeah, I like that term. That's mm -hmm. has a nice sound to it. And I agree with everything that you just said. And that was way back when we started Pacific Rim College, the term alternative medicine kept getting volleyed around. And I, I just knew that I didn't want to use that. It yeah. just, it didn't sit right with me. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, most of the medicines that we're teaching and practicing are thousands of years old, so hardly the alternative. But, yeah, yeah. So with your patients, do you have some who decide to do entirely the natural herbal route with you only? And mm -hmm. are you finding good results doing that? Yes, I have had some who will only do the natural route. And, um, and some of them have done very well. I'm thinking about one who actually wrote a book herself about her experience, and that was a number of years ago now. Um, and she came to me with um, a breast cancer um, that had occurred during pregnancy. And, uh, and they had induced the baby and um, wouldn't let her breastfeed. So by the time she got to me, she was five days away from starting chemo. 
and she had these hugely engorged painful breasts and I'm like yeah prolactin oh yeah prolactin is a proliferative hormone gosh you're full of prolactin right now I wonder what your breasts would be like without the prolactin so she agreed not to do the chemo on the you know right away and sort of sit it out a bit and long story short she didn't do chemo she did she did a lumpectomy and that was about 15 years ago so yeah people definitely I mean that's a good story because she she wrote a book about it um I would say that very few patients are willing to do only natural medicines. And I'm not convinced that that's always the best choice anyways. I mean, I'm, I'm not, to, because that, that puts us back in the alternative world, doesn't it? You know, why would you only do natural medicine when there are some really good other methodologies out there? Um, you know, I'm thinking, for example, a patient I have right now with B-cell lymphoma, and she's been a natural health practitioner herself all her life. She's older now, but her, her philosophy is um, quite rigid about natural medicines. It's natural medicines all the way. And I'm, I'm arguing with her, trying to get her to take chemo because she actually tested out for, she, you know, she did a lot of tests to find out what was going on. And she tested out for a marker that makes her an extremely good candidate for a very low level drug that would probably be really, really successful. It's well established, it's been used a long time. And, uh, and I think she's mad not to do it. So then I have to make a choice, do I fire the patient? Or, which is not something I routinely do. What I do is I, I put it in the file, discuss these issues, patient declines to pursue. Right, so that it's recorded that I was encouraging her to go for treatment because the big fear, and this is why I think a lot of new practitioners don't take cancer cases, the big fear is always about litigation, isn't it? If my patient dies and the family come back and say, well, that herbalist told her to just do the herbs and throw the drugs away, that's probably not good. Right. So I, um, I don't fire patients if they choose not to do mainstream. Um, but I put it in the file, what's happened, so that, so that it is recorded. And I might ask them several times in every appointment, I'll say, have you, have you had a, a rethink about this? Do you want to explore this? So I'm in favor of collaboration. I'm in favor of both. I actually think that cancer, if you, you know, we all have cancer. You have cancer right now. Every one of us has yep. cancer cells, right? So yeah. if you can stay on track on top of that, if you can have the healthy lifestyle and hopefully the good genes and all those things, then great. But if you've fallen off that fine balancing act and you now have that diagnosis of cancer, I think it's unfair to the herbs to expect them to be able to fix that on their own. I actually think it's an unreasonable expectation of the herbs. People seem to think that herbs can save the world. And I'm not of that opinion. I believe that herbal medicine has a huge role to play in a collaborative practice where the patient is getting everything that they need. I mean, me personally, well, maybe I won't talk about me, I'll talk about my sister. So my sister is a herbalist in Scotland and she's quite public with this, I'm not breaking any confidentiality. The cancer that my dad almost got, the cancer that his sister died from, is the same cancer that my sister subsequently got. She takes after my dad's side of the family, I take after my mom. So my sister got the same gene that my dad had and his sister and probably other members of the family previously, but we don't know it. It's a 
peritoneal cancer, primary peritoneal cancer is very rare. And um, so it's usually misdiagnosed as stomach cancer, which is what my aunt supposedly died of. But now we realize it wasn't that. In the beginning, my sister, my dad was told he had pre precancerous lesions in the stomach. And my sister was initially told it was a gastric cancer. It turned out to be peritoneal. So she's a herbalist. We were both so profoundly impacted by my dad's early experience that we both went to herbal medicine school. She was a year below me in school. Um, and she's like myself, has been a herbalist all her life. We've never had straight up jobs. We've always done herbal medicine. And she has a very, very busy practice in Scotland. She purchased the oldest herbal company in the UK. And it's in the same premises since 1860. And she has case records of the herbalists in that practice going back to the 1800s, literally. Oh, that's so trunks. Cool. She's got trunks full of copper plate writing. And wow. some of those are several generations of the family. And some of those families still come to her in clinic today. So she's got oh. the, the files four or five generations back. Pretty cool. That's fascinating. So when she got diagnosed, this was quite interesting. She was um, the picture of health in as much as she exercised maybe a bit obsessively. She ate only organic. She was super clean living. She didn't smoke. She drank a little bit, but Scotland, everybody drinks in Scotland. <laughs> and, uh, and so she didn't really pay much attention when she started to have some odd abdominal symptoms and she thought she was going to menopause and so blah, blah. Anyway, and it got missed by the doctors. So by the time she was diagnosed, she collapsed, literally fell over one day. And she was diagnosed with stage 3B abdominal cancer with too many lesions to count. Right. So they told her that was July. They told her she would be dead by Christmas. And then they came back around and said, you know, we might be able to do something. Let's, you know, let's have a look at this. And long story short, she ended up so the, the, the point of the story is about collaboration and, and, and integrating the system. She ended up doing chemo, but she did an unusual combination of chemos that wouldn't routinely have been offered because her oncologist was phenomenal. We, I went into the first appointment with my sister. I was studying at Kew Gardens in London at the time. So I was able to go up to Scotland and go to that appointment. And the oncologist, we go in the room, no white coat, Right away, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. First thing she does is come over and give my sister a big hug. And she said, I know who you are. I know your work. I've been sending patients to your shop for years to buy herbs. And I'm so sorry to meet you in these circumstances. What do you want from us? We're here to help you. You tell us what you need. It's like, wow, that's not your average oncologist. Mm, no, not at all. But because of that, she was able to get more than, and because she was educated, she was able to get more than the average patient, I think. So she got specialty testing done and they came up with this chemo cocktail. She did genetic testing to come up with chemo that would work for her. Um, I was not her practitioner, by the way. Jonathan Treasure was her herbalist. I didn't, I was her coach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, she did chemo and a huge amount of herbs and the oncologists, my, my sister said to the oncologist in that first appointment, she said, I, I, how are you going to feel about me taking herbs? You know, I, I'm a, obviously, you know, I'm a herbalist. And the oncologist said to her, she, and I was in the room. I heard this myself. She said, I don't know anything about herbal medicine. She said, I'm super interested. I want you to take quote, every herb you've ever heard that might possibly help you. And then give me the references so I can learn about them. 
Wow. So when oncologists come back to my patients, they say, oh, you can't take vitamin C, you can't take echinacea, you can't take anything. I'm like, really? That's not what all oncologists think. No. <clears throat> That's such so a powerful I, perspective. Yeah, yeah. So the idea was that she would do chemo, and after three months or so, they would see if they had shrunk some of the lesions enough that they could do some surgery. At this point, she had a complete bowel blockage, so some surgery was going to be needed. So she went, she did the chemo, she did tons of herbs, and I mean, like, a lot. <laughs> and, and she aced the chemo, she missed one day of work. This was a chemo, they said 90% of patients won't even complete because it's so hard on the body. She missed one day of work. Um, I'm not saying she was well, she wasn't like bouncing around, but she was functioning because she knew how to manage herself during chemo. She did all the pre-chemo fasting and all kinds of procedures and protocols to make chemo tolerable and effective. So she gets to the surgery three months later and they, <clears throat> they decided to scan before surgery just to kind of map which lesions had shrunk enough to be able to get them out. Um, knowing that they would leave a lot of stuff in. It wasn't a curative surgery in any way. It was just to unblock a few tubes and what have you. So they scanned her and started prepping up for the surgery and the scans come back from radiology lab and they're like, oh no, you sent the wrong scans. This is, this is weird, there's nothing. There was no cancer in her. Really? So they're like, really? We've never ever, they, we do not expect this with this chemo. This is not normal. So they opened her anyways to have a look and they found dead cancer cells in a few places, which they were able to remove quite successfully and stitched her all back up. And when she came around, she was in recovery ward and her surgeon was at the end of the bed. And he said, you know, glad to see you've made it through, you know, welcome back. And uh, you do know that the herbs did this, don't you? And she's like, what do you mean? And she's kind of woozy from the surgery. Do you think my herbs caused this cancer? And he said, no, 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 that's not what I mean at all. He said, we would never have expected to see this kind of resolution with the chemo that you had. We thought we were just sort of patching in a little bit. And the herbs, this is the herbs who, who, that did this. Your cancer is gone. <laughs> that was her surgeon saying that. Yeah. Why, why, why then are so few open to this and open to this I don't know. form of <laughs> learning, learning from the patients and the patient's experience and from the plants? Because it seems like most of our practitioners are just getting their postgraduate education from pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to be working. And this so-called war on cancer, which I'm not in favor of as far yeah. as terminology goes anyway. Yeah. I, I also think in truth that not all patients are willing to do what it takes. So, you know, again, my sister, I go in about 12 hours after the surgery to see her. She's now out of the recovery ward and into a, a regular ward. And she's 12 hours out of surgery. She's still got tubes in both arms, an epidural in her spine and tubes up both nostrils. And she's sitting up in bed and she's got one of those lap table things. And she's got a jar of ultra concentrate echinacea, a jar of super concentrate mushroom and a jar of super concentrate turmeric powders and a big glass of water. And she's spooning the powders in the water and stirring it, holding her tubes aside to get this stuff down her throat. I mean, honestly, most patients are not willing. Oh, that tastes horrible. Oh, I can't do that. Right. Oh, and and so come on. What, what's the right. alternative yeah so <laughs> your body they, they told up. her she would be they told her she would be two weeks in hospital 
she would be six weeks bed rest at home and that she couldn't leave the hospital until she could walk unaided the length of the corridor. Four days later, she walked unaided four flights of stairs mm. and they sent her home. Wow. And I wouldn't say it was all a walk in the park. She, you know, she had a lot of recovery, but she's now we've just passed the um, eight year mark. And um, and she's cancer free. And my God, does she take a lot of herbs? This yeah. is a woman who is practically green from top to toe from the herbs she takes. Um, and, you know, and it caused her to change her lifestyle and, 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 you know, not work as much and have more fun. And, you know, all of those things that we tell our patients, she, she literally absolutely took them on board. But I tell this story often because it illustrates how a really motivated patient who, let's be honest, who could afford the treatments because she's in the business, she could get everything at cost. That's a huge factor. And, uh, and doctors who are willing to support her to do that. And a really amazing outcome from a very, very progressed cancer. So I tell my patients this story because it's encouraging for them. Not everyone's going to get that kind of response, but, but it is possible. It is absolutely possible. And do you tell that story and others like it in your book? Um, I, I haven't told her story directly, but I have three cases in the book. Yeah. I've okay. written up three cases and the cases I chose are, um, they're current, they're patients that are still going through treatment with me. Um, and they're all very different conditions. Um, one of them indeed is in, um, possibly in, in end stage now. And I write about that too, in the book. Um, and he wrote a piece for me for the book about being a patient in the clinic. Um, and he, and I wrote that case because he's on multiple medications for multiple other problematic issues, including an immunosuppressive, which is probably causing the cancer. Right. So it's an interesting story because it's about navigating between all the drugs. Yeah. Well, Chantal, there's so, I've taken so many notes. There's so many questions and things I want to discuss. First, I want to say thank you for saying something that I've been saying for years, which is we all have cancer. Mm. It just is a fact of life, whether it's a single cancerous cell or a plethora of them in the form of a tumor or some other mass, we all have it. And I've always been an advocate of obviously with my experience in holistic medicine taking the whole holistic perspective and listening to our bodies and i think in a lot of cases people who get severely sick and perhaps don't get a diagnosis that seems to fit but go ahead and take a proactive stance in their health and make lifestyle changes like you said your sister changed her lifestyle but maybe someone goes radically into examining, well, I'm not doing well, so what's in my life that's not working? Mm -hmm. I think by doing that and maybe taking herbs or changing our diet or having exercise or getting more sleep, I think people are recovering from cancer all the time mm -hmm. and have no idea that that was actually part of the problem to begin with. And oh, I think so that's probably true. We, I mean, we make... Um, many, many, many malignant, potentially malignant cells every day in our bodies. Every, you know, every time a cell replicates, there's a chance for an error to creep in. And if your immune system and everything else is working well, you'll probably overcome it. The danger with this approach, however, is a very real danger, is um, people feeling guilty 
that they brought this upon themselves. Mm. So as much as we talk about changing your lifestyle and changing your mind and your outlook and all of those things, it's a very, very tricky conversation to have without inducing a feeling of, oh my God, I did it wrong all these years. It's my fault. I'm sick. And while there may be some truth in that, you've been eating junk food and, and smoking and living in polluted cities and et cetera, et cetera. Taking that on as personal responsibility, you know, it's your responsibility to change it once you know it and see it. But to get there, it's really, you don't want to blame people for the poor choices they may have made out of lack of information. And, and honestly, we all know that we are manipulated by the marketplace to eat junk food and, and you know, like the, the, the lifestyles that our contemporary culture promote through mass media are profoundly unhealthy. And likewise in schools, kids are not taught how to make vegetable soups. You know, if you go to cook to, to home ec classes or cooking classes, you end up making cakes. Yeah. You know, really it's 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 not okay to blame the patient for having got to the place they're at, but patients take that on and blame themselves. Well, well I want to push back a bit on that though, because I think in that is part of the healing. And Anyone who's going to adopt the victim mantle with this diagnosis already has a track record yes, of you're being in the victim right. mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a, that is, for me, medicine is, uh, call it one medicine. That's what I like. It's just, it's whatever form of healing works. I don't yeah. like giving them labels or titles. And part of the medicine that I know works is inner reflection doing mm -hmm. the inner work and that involves taking personal accountability without onboarding the shame and the guilt because the shame and the guilt are simply negative aspects of it and they're going to lead the negative outcomes we've got to turn it to the positive these are past experiences we live and learn and if we don't grow as a result of those then we are going to within us grow things such as cancer yeah i couldn't agree more yeah we can't undo um, you know, the, the, we can't, we can't change the past, but we can move forward in a positive way. And so I often have these conversations with patients because they do feel really badly sometimes that they've been diagnosed with this and as, you know, taking it on as a, as a blame thing. So I work hard with them to, to reframe that. Um, and, and, and yes, as you say, you don't want to put people into that sort of victim. This was, you know, I had no power and now look what's happened. Mm -hmm. um, that may be true, but it's not helpful going forward. They need to find that power. They need to, part, I mean, part of the work in clinic is coaching people to feel empowered to look after themselves, yeah. whether that's curing cancer or dealing with their allergies, you know, whatever the di diagnosis or disease, empowering people in clinic is a huge part of our work. I had a, a close friend a couple of years ago who had a diagnosis of, Late stage breast cancer and the prognosis was not good and she was willing to try anything and my wife and I went to her house and we were chatting with her and I noticed this huge change in her and how she was presenting herself and she had traditionally been someone who was very hard on herself, mm -hmm. very negative and always trying to serve others. She would have dinner parties for 15 people that she would plan for days and days and days and everything would be perfect with a menu to go along with it and always putting this stress on herself 
And as she started to go through this process, she started to wake up to it all. And she was really just, her heart was opening. I was feeling a stronger connection to her in this one meeting with her than I had in years and years of friendship. And I remember saying to her, uh, with her husband there in the room and my wife there in the room, I, I looked at her and this was kind of tongue in cheek, but I was also saying it from the heart. I said, I'm so glad you got cancer. And we both had a great laugh about it because she was now waking up to what she had been doing to her body emotionally. Mm-hmm. And she was able to make radical changes. And I can happily say she went through treatments, also did a lot of non-conventional things, and she's doing very well today. But it was something that revolutionized her life. And I think that's severe illness has to do that. If it's not a catalyst to bring about revolutionary change, we're probably going to find that this or something else comes along in the not too distant future again. Yeah, I think you're quite right. I absolutely concur with that, that there has to be something from inside you that says this is not this is not the way it's going to happen anymore that you have to take that you have to take that power back and and uh... i think the whole concept and the terminology in western medicine of now your cancer is in remission i i I don't like that at all because Mm -hmm. basically it just leaves the patient feeling okay we've we put a cap on this thing for now, but we know it's eventually going to bubble over and seep yeah. out into my body again. Yeah. Well, no, let's look at healing. Let's look at healing. And then we don't have to worry about that anymore. And many of my patients have said, many of my patients have said in hindsight that cancer was the best thing that ever happened. Mm-hmm. And it's a really strange comment to hear because, you know, you have to reach death's door to make these kind of internal changes i'm not just talking about you know quitting sugar and quitting smoking i'm talking about the the attitude change the 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 deep work inside that changes how you function in the world and i have to say for me in clinic now todd after so i graduated in 1987 i've been seeing patients for a long time and it is that uh, deep inner work that is the most interesting now. I can tell them what herbs to take. I can sort out their diets, you know, all of that stuff, fix the aches and pains. But the really interesting work for me as a practitioner now is, is supporting people to change their life. And yes. for me personally, what that has meant is that, <laughs> so how much more time do we have? When I've I was got as there, much as you want. Yeah. When I was in graduate school, um, I, so we're talking almost 20 years ago now. Um, Yeah. Oh my gosh, it is 20 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to take an ayahuasca trip. Yes. And uh, long before it was trendy and, you know, the in, the in thing to be doing 20 years ago, it was not the sort of, you know, let's get high on Saturday night that it is today, which is a total travesty. I had a very extraordinary experience working with a shamanic practitioner who had been training in Brazil for four years. And he had been, he was British, but he'd been working with a psychotherapist who used um, ayahuasca in her medical practice to take people out on journeys and learn stuff about their life. So he had a clinical approach to using it. And he still runs ayahuasca retreats in England. He's, almost, he's pretty much retired now, but his crew were carrying on. And they work mostly with doctors, prison officers, probation officers, judges, like professional people who find this to be useful medicine. 
So he's he's a he's a professional. <laughs> Can I say professional shame when that's not really a term, is it? <laughs> he's a practitioner and a. I provider. know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but but it's absolutely not about hey let's get high on Saturday night. This is about you you sign up with him. It's a four day. He takes your car keys away when you get there, so you can't leave the property and go, you know, make phone calls in town and drink coffee in the coffee shops. Right, you're there for the for the intense therapy program. Mm -hmm. So he gave me the opportunity to do an ayahuasca trip with him, just the two of us. We went away. Actually, we went to Lytton, which is just burned to the ground. Yeah. Um, we went to Lytton because there is a place outside of Lytton called Botany Valley. It's reservation land. But I knew people who lived there. And it is a ecological, uh, gosh, an ecological oasis, I could say, um, named botany valley for a reason um very very special place so i wanted to go somewhere where the plants were very strong where the plant medicine felt strong so that's where we went the two of us for, for 10 days we did we made the medicine so we ground the herbs it took five days to prepare with song and prayer we had we fasted we were in silence um for 24 hours before taking the medicine it was very serious this was a really serious thing and I had an experience during that trip where the plants came to me and said, and I can still hear, I mean, it was literally it was words in my head. It wasn't just a sort of sensation or an awareness. It was literally words. The plant said, you need to start working with plants. And I'm like, it was weird. I'm a herbalist. I've been 15 years working with plants. They're like, no, you need to start working with plants. And I'm like, oh, that's really weird. I'm a herbalist. No, plants. I realized I was working with extracts, with pills and potions. Right. And instead of don't take this drug, take this pill instead. And it wasn't doing anything to change the way people function in the world. And I realized from that moment that I needed to change the way I function in my world. So I was in grad school doing all the statistical analysis of breast cancer patients in Donnie Yance's clinic and and while still in grad school, I enrolled myself into horticulture therapy school. And I came straight out of grad school and went into horticulture therapy program uh, because I wanted to find a way that I could, I needed a, you know, some qualification that I could, could sort of hang my reputation on. I wanted a training that would enable me to take my patients in the gardens and be outdoors with my patients, with the plants. And so I, I did that training and I subsequently went on um, in 2016, I went to Japan and took training in the Shinrin-yoku, the forest bathing therapy. Yeah. Because I've now found for me personally that the only way I can do this cancer work is to be in touch with the plants, by which I don't mean pills and potions. I yes. mean actual plants. So this morning I was up early. I was out in my echinacea field. I was harvesting fresh echinacea plants to ship out to a couple of herbalists in Vancouver this morning. And that's my medicine. That's what I do to stay healthy is to be with the plants. I mean, yes, I eat a good diet and I don't smoke and all those things, but mostly it's about being with the plants. And so now I take my patients when I have patients in person, which hasn't been for a while, but I love if I can to get them outside. I have medicine gardens here. I mean, I'm running a botanic garden and it's all set up about medicine and education on, on medicinal plants. And um, 
And so I take the patients in the gardens and introduce them to their medicines and invite them to take a cutting home and grow it on the windowsill, not to make their own medicine per se, but just to have a relationship with the plants. Because my personal belief is that if we're going to make it through this environmental mess that we've created on the planet, if we're going to, it's going to take people starting to care about the plants and the planet a whole lot more than they do right now. And the only way people care about something is if they actually know about it and have a relationship with it. So my, my approach to, I mean, I, I do support the protesters in Fairy Creek. I've been sending bags and bags of teas down. I've been sending money down. But really, those lovely people at Fairy Creek are a very small voice in a very lot of noise about, you know, a lot of people are still up for cutting trees down. And so I believe that we need to connect people to plants and not to just plant medicine, but to the actual plants. Um, and to me, that's, you know, that that's the healing work that I do in my life now. And that's the healing work I do on, on the planet now is helping people to appreciate plants more so that they will care more about the plants around them. I just had a conversation yesterday at my farm with a fellow podcaster, and he also supports Fairy Creek. And he was there with a friend who has started an initiative called Bathhouse Canada. And his goal is to take basically the bathhouse concept of healing spas into the forest and turn the forest into a healing sanctuary, more of a tourist type of industry rather than a logging industry, which I thought was quite interesting, mm -hmm. this concept of, just, as you're saying, reconnecting people to nature and having yeah. them appreciate it from a different perspective. And I'm actually quite a proponent, proponent of logging. I actually think forestry is a very um, good industry because it is actually a sustainable industry. We can replant and grow it more. Done, I'm, just properly, not, yeah. I'm just not in favor of cutting old growth. I'm no. certainly, you know, the way I look at it, and I've been, I've been harassing my, my elected MLA for a while. I'm massively disappointed in the MLA that I voted for, who is utterly not standing up for any anything of interest at the moment but i've been harassing her saying don't you care about jobs for the forestry industry if you care about jobs for the forestry industry you plant trees you don't cut the old growth it's like this is ridiculous anyway, yeah um, well it's i i agree and i had a guest uh, chris Daramont, on the show a while ago and we talked about the replanting of forests because i agree that forestry is a sustainable industry if done properly but what he was also bringing up is that the way we are doing it, at least here in BC, is not healthy and sustainable because we're planting monocrops. Monoculture we're, never we're works. We're taking a diverse forest and we're just planting single species trees. And he shares how the ecosystem within that is simply not thriving. The animals yeah, aren't returning. Yeah. 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 And then it's susceptible to beetles and to fires and all sorts of other things. Yeah. which of course is a concern here, but that's that's a whole mm -hmm. other offshoot mm -hmm. we could go down. Yeah, but I mean, you know, the point I was trying to make there really is about connecting people back to plants. Absolutely. Know, in whatever way it takes. So my personal passion is not providing tinctures and pills and potions to people, but actually providing herbs to people. Yep. And every single patient in my practice gets a, ha a hand-blended herbal tea, which is not a tea bag. It is loose herbs. Yes. And there's a purpose for that. Even if they don't need it, I mean, everybody does in a way, but, but it's a philosophy in my practice that every single patient gets a herbal tea 
because I want them to see the plants, the actual plant material of which I'm growing for my, for my practice now about half of the herbs that I prescribe. Oh, and wow. they love that too, to know that they're getting medicines from my gardens. Yeah, but, I want to hear more about that. But before we do, I, I think it's so cool that it was a plant journey, a psychoactive plant journey that brought this realization and this message to you. And I've had, I understand what you're saying about ayahuasca and how it's a bit of a, a trendy thing, but I've had a fairly different experience in the sense that everyone who I have worked with who is drinking the medicine of ayahuasca has had a deep respect and reverence for it. And maybe it's just the culture that I've been taking part in, taking part in, but I haven't seen more of the the party aspect of it because quite frankly, as you know, ayahuasca is absolutely disgusting. Yeah. I know what kind of parties that lying down it, in the dark. It's not like you drink it and go, okay, let's sit back and wait for the magic. No, let's sit back and wait till we vomit and feel like we're gonna die. So I don't know many people who sign up to do that. And if anything, the people who I who I know do it go into it with great trepidation because they know that they're in for a night or two of of deep internal uh, reflection and and pain that they perhaps aren't prepared to experience but are willing to at least face it i think that's how it should be to be honest it should you should have some trepidation it it, it, if you do it right it really can change your life but there is a whole sort of ayahuasca tourism thing that happens Mm. you know people are taking trips down to peru and and it's yeah I would love. There's to a dark think, side to everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. the The medicine will provide will will reveal itself to the people that need it. But I think I yeah. I, I know that there are people who've gone with the wrong attitudes and had some really bad experiences. Well, they get a rude awakening when they, they do. They get a very like rude awakening, and and you know, sad but true. There's also some charlatans out there pur- purporting to be you know spiritual Absolutely. guides and shamanic practitioners and providing yes, indeed, providing the medicine, but not providing a safe space, not providing the correct set and setting, which is crucial. Yeah. As with all of those drugs, the drug itself, the compound itself is only part of the story and the set and setting and the guide that you have mm-hmm. and the work you do afterwards is critically important. And, and I know that, you know, obviously that can be done well, but regrettably, I know of people who've had some really bad experiences with yeah. that. And it's unfortunate because then they blame the plant. Yes. Yeah. Which, of course, we know has nothing to do with it. I am currently I'm having the the great uh, privilege of of reviewing a book by Lori Eve Dakar and her husband Benjamin Fox called The Alchemy of Inner Work and Lori is a Chinese medicine practitioner and I'm loving this book because it is all about taking this ancient wisdom that we have and doing the inner work healing from within and making sure that we're making the changes that we need to make so that if illness does arrive, then it becomes an opportunity for us to do more work as opposed to what ends up being the case with most people where it's kind of an end game scenario. You go down the, the rabbit hole of hardcore intervention and life is never the same for the worse after it. Mm-hmm. And the whole lesson is completely missed in the process. And there's a whole lot of other cultural stuff going on behind all of that because we've so... Um we've so isolated the process of death and dying as if it's actually a failure of medicine. If, if a patient passes away as if somehow that's a failure and you maybe know the statistic, but not everybody does that about 
um, you know, over 80% of your healthcare costs are, are, are caused in the last six months of your life. It's like, yeah. this is completely ridiculous that, that, we've, that we've so um, demonized the death process that mm-hmm. we, we don't see it. We're not with people when they die. They die surrounded by machines and bright lights. And, you know, I, I find this very, very sad that we can't embrace death as a process and, and um, not necessarily looking forward to it, but, but accepting it instead of, instead of trying to push it off and deny it and spend a lot of our living time in fear of that. We've, we've demonized something that is, utterly absolutely unavoidable by every single one of us you know was it benjamin franklin who said the only two things in life that are certain is taxes and death yeah you no know, i think that was benjamin franklin i, I might think be. it was yeah but, uh, you know and and yet honestly how many of us have sat and held the hand of someone as they pass over in the moment of dying not a lot of us have been able mm-hmm. to do that. And, and when it does happen, if it's in a medical setting, it's often very frightening. It's, you know, like I said, bright lights and beeping and panicky feelings and, you know, alarms going off. And it's like, this is really unfortunate. Um, I'm, I have to say, I'm very glad to live in Canada with the uh, medical assistance in dying that we have. And, um, and I have had many of my patients make that plan and set themselves up for a good death and are uh, have a peace of mind around being allowed and able to do that. And now, as I'm sure you know, there's a questionnaire going around from government about whether we should be able to do advanced planning. And I absolutely believe that we should be able to do advanced planning. We should have the, the right to choose the time and means of our demise. Um, and that would de- it would de- demonize it if we could accept this as part of living, <laughs> if yeah. we could talk about it more readily, if we could bring our seniors back home, um, if we could yes. have more deaths in the home, get the children there. Oh, little Johnny would be so traumatized uh. if Granny die. I'm like, actually probably more traumatized to not know what happened to Granny and not have had a chance to say goodbye. I can't imagine a worse fate than what we're doing to our elders and putting them into these care homes as it's not just warehousing yeah it's not a measure that okay we're doing this for the time being and hopefully there will be healing no it's like this is the end of life treatment we're putting you in these places and i certainly don't want to go um it brings to light for me the work of dr zach bush i'm not sure if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with him but in the the farming industry you may be and as well as in healing And he's done so much of his career in hospice care. And to hear him talk about the lessons that he learned from his patients in their final days and minutes of life, it's extraordinary. And the man is, he's such an incredible doctor and human being. And he has such a different perspective on the death process than what the the Western medical mindset Mm -hmm. is around it. And I agree with you completely. It's something to... Well, let's embrace it. Yeah. And before the show, you were, we were talking a bit about, uh, I had just recently interviewed Rosemary Gladstar. And in that episode, she shares that her elderly mother is at home with her. Mm-hmm. And she's in her mid-90s. And Rosemary's her herbalist and treating her with everything she can. And her mom's only on one drug for pain relief, uh, which is morphine. But that's where she needs to be. And she's there and actually, with family. her mom died. Her mom passed away this week. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. At home, peacefully. Oh, well, I have to reach out to her. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's 
at home peacefully. Yes. And that's how my love. mom passed away. My mom died four years ago and I was with her. My sister and I were with her. And I mean, we were lucky because mom was 95 and had all her marbles. I mean, she, yeah. she was still, you know, reading, she liked to read um, political history. So she was still reading. She had all her own teeth. She didn't use a walking stick. She didn't use hearing aid. She'd never had a surgery. She'd never broken a bone. Wow. She was on one blood pressure med. Um, and that was just because the doctor insisted. And she died at home with us. She had dinner with us that night, the night before, sat up and had a nice salmon dinner, uh-huh. tucked her up in bed. And in the morning, she uh, she got up and, you know, started drinking a cup of tea. And then my sister told a silly joke. My mom laughed, lay back, and that was it. Wow. And they were like, laughing. Mom, are you there, Mom? Oh, my God, I think she's died. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> she literally died laughing, literally. Wow. And, uh, I mean, not everybody has that that you know obviously yeah in pain and suffering but um but i personally believe that if they were at home in a peaceful happy environment and if death wasn't considered a failure or an or i mean i was gonna say not an end point and i don't want to dive out here into some kind of you know spiritual discussion about is there life after death that's not really where i'm going here i'm just meaning that we shouldn't pathologize death mm-hmm Death is a natural process. We need to embrace it and find out ways to to celebrate that person's life. And isn't it ironic that we also pathologize birth? Yes, isn't it? Yes. So yeah. the, the two, in my opinion, only certainties of life, birth and death, and yeah. we turn both of them into a disease situation. Yeah, and it makes it frightening. And the patient loses control, um, which is very disempowering for them. And yeah. the families are excluded from the process. And yeah, it's it's all it's all not well, great. And that, as you've indicated, the amount of money and on interventions that are spent to prolong life in those final yeah. few days or weeks or months, as opposed to embracing what is happening yeah. and letting the patient, letting not patient, terrible, letting the person, letting the loved one go peacefully or laughing as the case with your mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my good friends is Dan Reed, who's a Taoist scholar and has written many books on Taoism and herbal medicine. And he told me this beautiful story with author John Blofeld, who uh, was also a, an Asian scholar. But Dan met him in the very end stage of his life. He was on his deathbed from cancer and he was writing his autobiography in Chinese. <laughs> and which Dan ended up uh, translating after his death. But John reached a point where he didn't think he was going to finish it. He was so sick and he was on all these drugs that were making it so that he couldn't think clearly Mm -hmm. and he just didn't want to get out of bed. And Dan suggested that he start taking something called hydrogen, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it is a pharmaceutical, but with a very, very uh, good safety profile very, very limited side effects, and for the most part, quite natural and derivation. And John started taking hydrogen and started going out again with his friends and family to dinners and for parties, and basically went out celebrating his life and finished his autobiography. <laughs> and it was, it's, it's just such an uplifting account of someone who recognized, yes, I'm near the end, but I can either go out with tubes and wires and be in a, a drug-induced stupor, or I can go out in celebration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know we're not all lucky enough to be able to have that wherewithal to make that decision, 
but it certainly seems like the better alternative to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reminded of a good friend of mine who passed away a few years ago from lung cancer and knowing that the end was coming before it got unbearable for him, he organized a wake and he had what he called a living wake. Yeah. So he was there at the party. I mean, he was, mm-hmm. he was a very, um, he was a professor at UBC and he'd had a very illustrious life and he had touched on many other people's lives and made some very, very profound differences in other people's lives. And he had about 150 people come to the party from all over the world. They flew in, rented a big facility in Vancouver and had a wonderful party with him there where they could all tell him how much he'd impacted their lives and what a difference he'd made for them and how much they appreciated him. And what was really lovely is that his wife got to be there and hear all of those things and all the eulogies Mm. and what have you, so that when he did pass away, she did not then have to put on the brave face and throw the big party and have everybody saying, oh, we're so sorry. And she could just do her own grieving her own way without having to go through that process that is quite challenging for the family left behind, I think, sometimes to to hold the wake and all those things. um, And so I thought that was wonderful, knowing he was going, embracing the fact that he was going to go, let's have a party. (laughs) Yeah, well, why save the best celebration of our lives for after we're already gone? Yeah, I know when my dad died, we had a great party. My dad had left instructions of what he wanted because he had a, he had a plan. To, he, he, he was planning his death. He ended up having an aneurysm and dying, but he was very glad of that because he was on his way to Switzerland to try to get a, a, an intentional death. Um, that was difficult. I'm talking about 12, 14 years ago. It was hard to do that then. So anyway, he had left all the instructions. He had left a list of the music he wanted played, um, a list of um, the people he wanted invited, and he had set aside whiskey my dad was a whiskey collector he'd set aside the whiskey Mm -hmm. he wanted us to drink so we had this wonderful party and we had music and dancing and just the way he wanted and uh and then we're like oh such a pity tom's not here he would love this party (laughs) his favorite whiskey his favorite music his favorite friends too bad he's not here to celebrate with us we all had a really good time and laughed a lot and told funny stories about my dad i know we all have different beliefs but i think he was there yeah yeah i mean his time was up and he wanted out and so yeah. i was grateful that he was able to find a way out <laughs> yeah yeah well, Straight, how do we get onto all of this todd Gosh, i don't know i don't know morning chat <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no this is i guess we started with oncology and we're kind of yeah i think i need to head that, back out that, to my echinacea patch now and my head does up. sometimes lead to talks of morbidity <laughs> Yeah, but it's 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 all part of being a practitioner, isn't it? A lot of practitioners don't want to talk about this part because it does feel like failure. We're sort of labeled as all oh, the herbs didn't work. Well, actually, the person was dying and the herbs helped them have a better death. I believe the herbs help a great of life. deal. Yeah. yeah. So just because somebody dies doesn't mean that the medicine isn't working. It doesn't mean that herbal medicine should be tossed out or even the drugs. The drugs didn't save them either. Um, so I'm a big believer in quality of life and quality of death. Yes. I was just going to say that one quality of death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> I, could, I could chat with you for, for many We haven't hours. even talked you... about, about the, the gardens or, uh... I know. Well, where know. do you want to go? Do you have some time still? I don't really, I do okay. actually have to get a courier timetable. I'm sending out all this fresh echinacea. It has to go out at a certain time this morning or it doesn't get 
to the next. Well, one. let's do this again. If we that's can do all this right again. I'd love to talk about my gardens a little bit and what's going yes. on in the botanic garden world. Mm-hmm. I would love to do that as well. So yeah, let's reschedule. We'll do that. I think this has been a great episode. It's been fair, fairly uh, narrow focus, which is great for the listener. So um, yeah, I don't know who is going to listen, but I would like to just leave with the idea that, you know, herbal medicine is really powerful if you choose to make it so. You can use, you know, drips and drops of this and that to kind of supplement around the corners of things. But if you want to take herbal medicine on as a primary care practice, it is powerful and effective. And and if it's students who are listening, I can absolutely tell you that you can make a living as a herbalist and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yes. And where can people find more about you, Chancho? Mm-hmm. So um, through my website, it's just my name, chanchalcabrera.com. Um, there is a website for my farm as well, innisfreefarm.ca. Okay. I'll put both of those in the show notes and in the outro, I will spell those out so people can find those. Right. Thank you for doing this. Mm-hmm. Thank you for getting a book together to help people learn about all of <laughs> well, this. Well, it's going to be because... a while yet. I've got a year. It's going to come out, I believe, in um, fall of next year. So we've okay. still got a ways to go. Yeah. But, but yes, well, thank that's... you. It'll be well worth the wait. And thank you for always being part or for having been part in the Pacific Rim College community over the years. We mm-hmm. really appreciate and value your your guidance and your wisdom that you're able to pass on to students. So it's been wonderful to have you be part of what we have created there. So thank you for all that you are doing and continue to do. Mm, thank you, Todd. Likewise, you're, uh, you're quite a beacon in the herb world and I appreciate knowing you. Thank you. It's been great fun, and we'll do it again soon. Yeah, Yeah. we'll talk about cheerful things next time. Let's do that. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Chanchal Cabrera. For more about Chanchal, visit her websites, chanchalcabrera.com. That's C-H-A-N-C-H-A-L. C-A-B-R-E-R-A dot com and innisfreefarm.ca. That's I-N-N-I-S-F-R-E-E farm.ca. If you are interested in studying Western Herbal Medicine, the School of Western Herbal Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned programs, including world's first study options combining Western Herbal Medicine with acupuncture and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in herbal medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services on holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, take your relationship with herbs out of the dispensary or medicine cabinet and into nature. No.